for the last three weeks, uh, we have been working through Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 19 through 39, and we will conclude these verses uh, this morning. Now, in the previous messages, we made it all the way through uh, verse 34, uh, which leaves us only verses 35 through 39 uh, to examine this morning. And then in relationship to your sermon notes, and I hope you picked up a copy of the sermon notes as you were coming in, we have covered the first three major points, and all that's left for us to cover is that fourth and final point that is on the back side of your sermon notes. Now let me begin with a very a brief review for those of you that may have missed uh, the previous messages uh, so that you can at least get the sermon notes uh, filled in in uh, their entirety. And I would also encourage you to go to the church website uh, to listen to any message that you may have missed. Now Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 through 39 is probably the most significant passage in the entire book because of, as I've shared with you, we have come now to the climax of the book, the very heart of the book of Hebrews, and the main truth that the writer is using to challenge our hearts with. Now, the author of the book is, of course, writing to Hebrew Christians. Uh, these Hebrew Christians had begun running their Christian race very, very well. But due to pain and fatigue, brought on by severe persecution, they were now in danger of failing to remain faithful all the way to the finish line. To challenge these Hebrew Christians, the writer alternates between words of encouragement and words of warning. Uh, as we've seen throughout our study of the book of Hebrews, you cannot find another book in the Bible where you will find any greater words of encouragement to a believer. But you also cannot find another book in the Bible that has any more serious warnings uh, to a believer. Uh, we discover in this book both the tenderness of God's love to aid His child who comes to Him for help, but also the toughness of God's love. Uh, to discipline his child when that child wanders from him in disobedience. So follow along in your sermon notes, and I'm just going to briefly run through what we've already covered uh, to get us to verses 35 through 39. In verses 19 through 25, we see God's gracious invitation to the believer uh, to boldly, what, come into his presence. We are invited to enter God's presence through Christ's blood, through Christ's blood. The primary message in this chapter is that every obstacle to God's presence has been removed. And as a believer, you have access to His presence 24-7. That second bullet point, we are invited to come to our great and faithful high priest who gives mercy when we sin and grace in our trials. What a wonderful truth that we're invited to come. Every obstacle has been removed because His blood canceled our sin debt. It paid the penalty for our sin. And now we can come, even in our sin and failure, to receive His mercy and His grace in our time 
of trial. Now, what must we do in accepting God's invitation? And God says there are several things He requires of us in reciprocating to His love, to His invitation. First, we're to draw near with a sincere heart. And we've said that that sincere heart means two things. Number one, I'm to come with an undivided heart in full surrender to God. Second, I'm to come with a transparent heart. I'm to remove the mask. I need not fear coming to God even in my sin and failure because Jesus took the judgment for me. He paid that penalty. So I can come moving all the mask, being brutally honest with God, totally transparent. Uh, We've seen that word boldness there in verse 19 literally means to come with frankness of speech. I can just come and just be who I am, where I'm at, and pour out my heart to the Lord Jesus. Second, I'm to hold fast the confession of my hope. This is the element of faith. He says, when you come... Yes, I want you to come in surrender. I want you to come with an honest heart, transparent about your failure and sin. But I want you to come believing. I want you to come confident that you're going to be met with mercy and grace as I promised you. I want you to come confident that I will fulfill my promises in your life. And then third, we're to come to stimulate one another in love and good deeds. He says, when you come, I want you to realize that when I brought you to faith, I thrust you into a family of believers. And you have responsibility within that family to stimulate and to encourage your brothers and your sisters. And then in verses 26 through 31, we saw God's solemn warning to the believer who spurns his invitation and chooses instead to keep on sinning. And again, this is where you see the contrast in this uh, marvelous book of going from encouragement to severe warning. When a believer sins, we saw he has a choice. It's it's just very, very simple. The believer can confidently, despite his sin and failure, come into God's presence through Christ's blood, receive mercy and grace, or you can choose to keep on sinning. And that choice is ours. Now, that next point in your notes, when a believer refuses to appropriate God's mercy through Christ's sacrifice, when he doesn't avail himself of God's invitation to come to receive mercy, there is no other sacrifice God has provided. Therefore, God is left with no other choice but to severely discipline his child, to practice a tough love, because he cares for that child too much to allow his child to continue in sinful attitudes or behavior that he knows is going to lead down a path of self-destruction. And that's what it means when it says, for if we go on sinning willfully after coming to the knowledge of the truth, there is no more sacrifice for sins. In other words, if you don't avail yourself of the sacrifice of Christ, where are you going to turn? No other sacrifice was made. That is the only place to find mercy and grace in God's presence. Now, why the severe discipline? Well, several reasons. The believer who continues in sin, what he's basically doing from God's perspective is defiantly looking at God and saying, stay out. Leave me alone. That's exactly what you're saying to God. That's what I'm saying to God if I choose to continue in my sin. God, stay out. Leave me alone. Uh, They deny the lordship of Christ and live lives virtually indistinguishable 
from unbelievers. Uh, another reason the discipline is so severe, the believer who continues in sin counts the Son of God as worthless in comparison to enjoying his sin. That's why we read in verse 29, they have trodden underfoot the Son of God. And I shared with you probably the best definition you will ever find of sin is simply to value anything or anyone more than Jesus Christ. And when a believer continues in his sin, what he's saying is, I value my sin more than Jesus. And therefore, you're trodden under your foot, his very name. Also, the believer who continues in sin, notice, cheapens the blood that saved him. You cheapen that blood that saved you by embracing the very sin Jesus shed his blood for. And so it says, they regard as unclean the blood of the covenant which God sanctified them with. And then another reason the discipline is so severe, the believer who continues in sin treats with indifference the pleading, convicting, wooing, and leading of the Holy Spirit who lives within him. In that verse it says, we insult the spirit of, of what? Of grace. Again, God, this gracious invitation, come to me, even in your sin and failure, and you're going to be met with mercy and grace. And to spurn that invitation is not only to demonstrate that I'm enjoying my sin more than the worth I place on Jesus, not only am I cheapening the, the blood of Jesus Christ that sanctified me, but I'm insulting the Holy Spirit that lives within me, that's trying to woo me and bring me to that place of brokenness where I can know God's mercy and grace. And then that next question, how does God discipline there in your sermon notes? The believer will not suffer the loss of salvation. We talked about this. But God can take their life. And we saw examples of that where God will prematurely take the life of a believer who refuses to respond to his discipline and to avail himself of that invitation to receive mercy and grace and persist in his rebellion and sin. Or, he can let them live the rest of their lives experiencing the consequences of their sin. And in that regard, we said the key to interpreting the book of Hebrews is the example of the children of Israel in chapters 3 and 4. They were a redeemed people under the blood of the Passover lamb. God, by the might of His power, delivered them from Egypt, out of slavery, from the might of Pharaoh. And His intention was to take them to that rest of faith, to that promised land, that place of blessing. But due to their unbelief, due to a pattern of disobedience, due to their unwillingness, to know God's mercy and grace and persist in that un unbelief, God said, you're going to live the rest of your life knowing the consequences of that unbelief and disobedience. Because I swear in my anger, you will not enter my rest. And you know what happened. That generation spent the rest of their lives wandering where? In a wilderness. Until every one of their bodies lied dead. And then God took that next generation in. And folks, that's the warning that He gives to a believer here. God loves you. 
And all that He's extending to you is mercy and grace. Even when you sin, even when you fail, He's saying, come to me. And I'm not going to, you know, blow you away with the fire of my wrath. I'm going to receive you with mercy and grace. But if you refuse that invitation, if you choose instead to continue in sin, and you do not heed my chastening and my discipline, you can come to that place where I say, okay, if this is what you want, then live with it. Live with it the rest of your life. Notice that next sentence. Note, for the believer there is nothing more tragic than the sad consequences of what? Forgiven sin. Often there's nothing more tragic than the sad consequences of forgiven sin. Sin that Jesus forgave us of on Calvary's tree But because of our failure to avail ourselves of God's mercy and grace and to know His cleansing and persisting in that sin, we experience those sad consequences. Now let me emphasize, and I I hope I did this well last Sunday, even for the believer that is suffering the consequences of his sin, God uses those consequences to bring brokenness and to bring that believer into a deeper intimacy with Him. God did not abandon His people in the wilderness. He was still there present with them, providing them, leading them, guiding them, still willing to draw them into an intimacy with Him. We saw the wonderful example of David, how David willfully, deliberately, not only committed adultery, but committed murder. And not only committed adultery and murder, but tried to cover it up. He wore a mask, trying to pretend like he was some spiritual giant. When he had blood on his hands, and you remember when he became broken, God says, I've forgiven you, but he says, nevertheless, and then he talked about how the sword would never leave his family, and he would go to his grave knowing the consequences of his willful and deliberate sin. But if you study David's life, God even used those consequences to take him into a much deeper, intimate relationship with the Lord. And we saw that marvelous example of that in Psalm 3 uh, when his own son Am- Absalom was chasing him down in the, uh, in the wilderness. Uh, and then look at the third point. Again, review God's reminder of the believer's faithfulness in past trials to encourage the believer's faithfulness in present trials. I love what he does here. You know, he started with encouragement. This open invitation to come into His presence, receive mercy and grace, even in our sin and failure and in our suffering and adversity. Just come, and you'll be met with grace. You'll be met with mercy. Then He comes with warning. Now, be careful that you don't spurn this invitation and deliberately continue to walk in sin. And now He comes back with warning. He says, remember your early days. And He he reminds them... Of, of many, many different signs of the authenticity of their Christianity. And he said, you need to get back there. You need to return to your first love, is basically what he's saying. And what did he remind them of? They endured suffering for Christ. They loved others at great cost. They were free from materialism. And they valued the treasure of Christ above all other things. He said, this is how you were living your Christian life. In those, in those early years. But now you've wandered. You've drifted from that. You've become unresponsive. You need to return to your first love. You need to get back to 
living out that authentic Christian life. And then we come to the fourth and final truth, God's loving appeal to the believer to stay true to Christ. And these are the remaining verses we need to cover today. Look at verses 35 through 39. Therefore, in other words, in light of everything the writer has just said, in light of all the encouragement, in light of all the warnings, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come. Referring to the return of Jesus. And will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. That's how we live until he comes. And if he shrinks back, in other words, continuing in sin, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction like the children of Israel in the wilderness, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. I love this. It's obvious this man loved these Hebrew Christians. And, he, and, he, and like a cheerleader, he's trying to say, you know, I, I have confidence. I have confidence that, that God hasn't given up on you. I have confidence that God is at, is at work in your life. And I have confidence, confidence you're going to respond. And, and you're going to turn things around. And you're going to continue to run that race faithfully across the finish line. So, uh, look at with me now at three appeals that he makes in these uh, verses as he concludes chapter 1. And the first appeal is to hold on to your confidence in God's person. Hold on to your confidence in God's person. Again, look at verse 35. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Now, confidence in what? It's very obvious. Confidence in Jesus Christ, who's been the supreme focus of this chapter and this entire book. And very specifically, within the context of these verses, confidence in His mercy when you sin. And confidence in His grace when you suffer. And when you find yourself in trial. When you find yourself in times of adversity. You know, you've heard me say before, that Satan's number one goal in the life of a believer is not just to tempt you to commit sin. Now, he's going to tempt you, and in that temptation, his goal, yes, is to get you to commit sin, but even greater than that, his number one goal is that when you do commit sin, you will lose confidence in God's mercy for you as a sinner. You'll have this thought that I've, you know, I've, I've done it one too many times. I've crossed the point of no return. And how could someone as unworthy as I enter God's presence and be met with mercy and grace? Great example of this is Peter. After he denied our Lord and Savior three times. And if you're familiar with the scriptures, he plunges into despair into despondency, depression. He returns to his old fishing life. Jesus resurrects from the dead. Peter thought, thinks, you know, I blew it. Remember, he was the one that said, you know, everyone else may forsake you, but what? Not me. I'm not going to deny you. I'm going to stay true to the end. 
And it was Peter that said, even cursing, I never knew the man. Never knew the man. And you remember after Jesus, right, he was fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus came on the shore. And I don't know if you've ever realized exactly what Jesus was doing in that encounter. He basically recreated the miracle that he did when he first called Peter to follow him. Remember when he first called Peter to follow him, he, he uh, used Peter's boat uh, to be thrust out. And uh, they caught this huge drought of fish. And Peter fell down in the, in, the, in the boat and said, Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. And Jesus looked at Peter and says, Peter, don't fear. From now on, you'll be catching men. Follow me. Well, what Peter, what Jesus did after his resurrection, he just recreated that miracle. They had been fishing all night, hadn't caught anything, and then suddenly he tells them to cast a net on the other side, and they catch this huge route. Suddenly Peter realizes that that's Jesus on the shore. You remember what he does. He, he doesn't wait to row to the, to the shore. He what? He jumps out of the boat, and he swims. But you know what Jesus was communicating to Peter in that by recreating that miracle? He was basically saying, Peter, you didn't do anything to win my love. Therefore, there's nothing you can do to lose my love. So my calling is still there on your life. And so he said, once again, follow me and feed my lambs. Get busy with the work that I've called you to. And you just need to understand that that's what Satan is going to try to do in your life. Yes, he's going to tempt you. He's going to try to get you to fall into sin. But then as you fall into that sin, he's going to try to sow seeds of doubt in your mind and in your heart about Christ's mercy for you as a sinner so that you will not avail yourself of that invitation to come into his presence. And that you'll stay out. Because he knows what? The only place to find mercy and grace is where? In his presence. And if you turn from that, you're just isolating yourself. You are cutting yourself off from the only power source that you have to know victory in your Christian life. And then, and, and not only... Does he want us to lose confidence in God's mercy when we sin? He also wants us to lose confidence in God's grace when we're suffering, when we're experiencing trial and adversity. In other words, when you're hurting as a believer, when you're in pain, when you're in a time of perplexity, Satan comes along and he tries to sow seeds of doubt about God's love for you. You're a child of God. And he's letting this happen to your life? You're telling me, as a child of God, your, your heavenly Father is just sitting on his hands in heaven watching you suffer like this, and, and he's doing nothing to intervene? See, he, again, what he's trying to do is to separate you from the very mercy and grace of God. He's trying to cause you to retreat from that invitation that's being extended to you to come into his presence to find mercy and grace. And folks, it's so important when you're hurting and when you're going through suffering and trial 
that you distinguish clearly between the voice of Satan and the voice of God. And let me help you with it, just so you'll clearly know. When you're suffering, it's the voice of Satan that says, this is an impossibility. Because you know what God says? He says, hey, this is only an opportunity that I've brilliantly disguised as an impossibility so that I can get the glory. Because God values in getting us in situations where our only hope is Him. And the only explanation for deliverance is God so that He gets the glory. And He, and he values perfecting His strength in the midst of our human frailty and weakness as we've seen in the book of Hebrews. Satan is going to try to get you to panic. He's going to try to get your emotions just to one run wild. Have you ever thought about it? Emotions in the word itself is what? Motion. And I'm telling you, Satan has the ability to get your emotions running with the velocity velocity of a roller coaster going up and down in every which way where you just become mastered by those emotions. But God comes in and He says, you don't need to panic because I'm going to provide. You can trust me. You may not understand right now where it's coming from, but you can trust me. I will not let you down. I love the scripture that it says, those who put their faith in God will never, 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 never be disappointed. And we will not, as long as we maintain our confidence in Him. Satan will tell you, Look at the size of your problem. He's going to try to get you to focus on the circumstances, the size, the enormity of the problem, to feed that panic, to strengthen that thought that this is an impossibility, that it's hopeless. God says, don't focus on the size of your problem. Focus on the size of me, the greatness of your God, that there's nothing impossible for me. There's no heart so dark that I cannot penetrate. There's no need so great that I cannot meet. And then Satan is going to try to get you to focus on all your inabilities, on all your weaknesses, and on all your frailties. Again, to just feed that panic and that sense of impossibility and hopelessness. God says, no, don't focus on your inability. Focus on the Master's ability. Focus on Jesus and His willingness and His ability. See, folks. If I focus on my willingness or my ability or I focus on your willingness or your ability, often I'm going to come up, what, without hope. But as long as I place my confidence in God's willingness, in Christ's ability, I'm never without hope. Never without hope in light of the greatness of our God. Satan will try to get you to worry about what you do not possess. You know, in light of the adversity that you're in, in light of the trial, it might be finances, it might be relationships, it could be a million one different things, but I guarantee His voice is going to try to get you to focus on everything that, that you perceive you don't possess that you need to get yourself through this. God says, don't focus on what you don't possess, focus on what you do possess and simply surrender it to me and allow me to make up the difference. And that's the kind of God that we have. That's called God's grace. God's grace. Great example of this was the feeding of the 5,000. You know, the disciples, they're panicking. They're seeing the size of the problem. Just let these folks go home. You know, the hour's late. 
Jesus says, oh, no, no, hey, guys, go see what, what, what's out there. Don't worry about what we don't have. Let's first see what we have. So they go scan the crowd, and they find this little kid with the little sack lunch, bring it to Jesus. Jesus says, that's all I've been waiting for. Just surrender to me what does exist, and I'll make up the difference. And that's exactly what he did. Amen? And he fed that tremendous crowd, and he can do that for you. And then in light of that, as you begin to panic, see the impossibility, the size of the problem, worry about what you're doing. See, he's going to try to get to push you to trust human ingenuity. He's going to try to push you to manipulate the situation. For you to step in and try to work it out, and, and you just what? Make it worse. Amen? That's just reality. And God is going to say, no, you trust the power of prayer. Trust the power of prayer. Trust me. Look at the second appeal, the second appeal, preserve, persevere in other words, persevere. In other words, keep on keeping on until you receive the fulfillment of God's promise. Look at verse 36, for you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what has promised. You understand what he's saying? He's saying we get in a time of trial and adversity, we step out in faith and obedience to God, and we don't immediately see the blessing. We don't immediately see the deliverance. And then it's, and the emotions come in, and it's panic time. And then we fall into unbelief and disobedience like the children of Israel. And then we miss the rest of faith and all that God intended to, to bless us with. That's the reward that is ours in this. Look at uh, one of my favorite uh, passages in all the Bible. Look at Romans 4. Don't have much time at all to comment on this, but just look at these great verses. Romans chapter 4. Here's a great example of persevering. Can keep on keeping on until you receive the fulfillment of God's promise. This, this refers to Abraham and Sarah giving birth to a child. Look at verse 18 of Romans 4. It says, In hope against hope, he, Abraham, believed. What did he believe? He believed the promise God gave him. God said, Abraham, you're going to be the father of many nations. You will not be able to count the number of your descendants. Look up to the sky. See those stars? Your descendants will be more numerous than the stars in the sky. He gave him that, that promise. It says, in hope against hope, he believed in order that he might become a father of many nations. According to that which had been spoken, so shall your, uh, your descendants be. And I love this. Verse 19, and without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body now as good as dead. How old was Abraham? A hundred years old. How old was Sarah? Ninety years old. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body now as good as dead. He was about a hundred years old in the deadness of Sarah's womb. In other words, he realized the circumstances that he was in. He realized from a human perspective, it did appear to be an impossibility, but God had given him a promise. And so instead of focusing on the circumstances, instead of focusing on all the negative, it says he made a choice. He made a choice. It says, yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief. But he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what he has promised, he was, a, uh, he was able also to perform. See, the tragedy of so many believers is we shut the book up too quick on God. You know, some, so often life becomes like a mystery. 
and we cannot see the plot. We cannot see any rhyme or reason. But we're not at the end of the book yet. And just like a good mystery novel, you get in the middle of it, and you know, you, you just can't figure it out. But as you hang in there, you get to that last chapter, sometimes the very last page, it all just what? Comes together. And you see the rhyme and reason. And it's the same way with God. Life, yes, is often like a mystery plot, but God ultimately is in control. And as you choose not to walk in belief, but to put your faith and confidence in God, He will bring it to a conclusion. So don't make the mistake the children of Israel did, who refused to believe. And that unbelief led them into disobedience. And therefore, they never got the blessing of that final chapter that God intended to give them, that wonderful promised land. Look at the third and the final appeal as we close. Place your faith in the accomplishment of God's plan. Look at verses 37 through 39. For yet, in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. I wish we had more time to uh, deal with this, but let me just give it to you in a nutshell. He quotes Habakkuk chapter 2. I don't know if you're familiar with the book of Habakkuk. It may be, it's probably my uh, most favorite um, of the minor prophets. It's a little book of only three chapters. Habakkuk was a great prophet, great man of God. And if you're familiar with the book, in the first chapter, you find the prophet arguing with God. And I mean arguing in anger, arguing in disappointment, disillusionment. And, and if, in the, the two underlying questions that he raises in that first chapter, is God fair and does God care? He was struggling with that. He, he wasn't seeing God work in his nation. The Babylonian nation, this evil empire, was coming from the north to invade the people. And he couldn't understand how God could allow that to happen. Because although his children were disobedient, he, you know, he just saw the Babylonians as this evil, these evil barbarians that, that were much worse than the, the, the children of God. And he was just confused. He was just perplexed. He was just overwhelmed by life circumstances. Well, God just lets him ramble and argue, just like God lets us ramble and argue and sput and spit. And then finally, God speaks in chapter 2. And folks, listen to me. This is how God most often works in the life of his child. I've walked with him since 1970. And in my trial and adversity, I don't know that I can ever think of an occasion where God gave me an explanation for what was happening. God doesn't bother giving explanations. And why? Because He wants to teach us to what? Trust. He wants to teach us reliance. He doesn't give explanations, but what does He give? Promises. And in the second chapter, He gives Habakkuk three promises. Not an explanation, but three promises. And the first one is quoted right here. He says, Habakkuk, the just will live by faith. Habakkuk, when you cannot trace my hand, will you trust my heart? And then the second promise he gives him is in 
verse 14, he says, Habakkuk, I give you this promise and guarantee. The glory of the Lord is going to fill the earth. In other words, what was he saying? The outcome is already determined, Habakkuk, because I'm the one moving and controlling everything. And I guarantee you, you may be confused right now, but when the smoke clears and we come to the end of the game, we're going to be on the winning side. And you can trust me. And then the last promise is in the very last uh, verse of Habakkuk, and I love the way it, of, of chapter 2, love the way it reads. It says, But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. Literally in the Hebrew text, where it says, Let all the earth be silent before Him, it's a word that could be used of a parent trying to quiet his child. In other words, the tone is Habakkuk. Hush. Hush. Hush, Habakkuk. It's okay, because I'm on the throne. I'm still there, and I'm still in control, and you can trust me, even in this. Well, folks, if you're familiar with the third chapter, that's all Habakkuk needed. He didn't need an explanation. He heard God's promises, and he got excited. And notice how he ends chapter 3. He said, I heard, and my inward parts trembled. At, at the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble. What's he talking about? He's referring to the invasion that's coming from the Babylonians. Because God had revealed that he was going to use the Babylonians as a rod of iron to chasten his people and to lead them into captivity. And then he says, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress. Literally in the Hebrew text that would read, I shall rest in the day of trouble. See, he began arguing with God. Is God fair? Does God care? And now he says, okay, I know circumstances are not going to get better. They're going to get worse in just a few days. But now I have found a place to rest in this day of trouble. And what is that place of rest? In God's presence, with God's promises. Trusting the Lord. And then he goes on and he says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vine, though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. And you know how that verse literally reads, verse 18? Literally from the Hebrew text, I will jump for joy in the Lord. I will spin around for delight in God. You're finding joy at its best when circumstances are at their worst. And that's because he's looking at God. He's gotten inside God's presence to hear God's promises, and he's putting his trust in the Lord. And then he says, the Lord God is my strength. And he has made my feet like hind's feet and makes me walk on high places. Folks, that's God's grace. Amen? And then look at the application. We touched on this last week. This is a good place to take a spiritual inventory. Ask yourself, where am I going in my walk with God? Ask yourself that. Ask God that. God, where am I going in my walk with you? Am I shrinking back into sin, unbelief, and or am I moving forward in my faith right now? Every believer 
You're never at a standstill. You're either moving back or you're moving forward. Which is it? Let God reveal that to you. Ask yourself, what will happen a year from now if I stay on the path that I'm on? Where will I be five years from now or ten? And then notice those last two points. If God convicts you, and if you're shrinking back into sin, what you need this morning is repentance to turn back to God. You need to see that gracious invitation He's giving you to enter His presence through the blood of Jesus Christ, despite your sin and failure, despite your unbelief and disobedience and rebellion, to find mercy. But if you're moving forward in faith, what, you, what do you need? Endurance. So you need to take a rest stop in the Holy of Holies and ask God for the grace to what? Keep on keeping on. Let me ask the uh, elders and the uh, deacons to begin to take their places uh, for the Lord's Supper. We're told that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, that he, after he had taken uh, the bread, he uh, gave thanks and he said, This is my body given for you. And then, of course, after the supper, we're told he took the cup, which represented his blood uh, that uh, inaugurated the uh, new covenant, which secures forgiveness which secures His mercy and grace. And He said, what? Do this in remembrance of Me. So my invitation to you as God's spokesperson this morning is that as you come to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning, come confident in God's mercy and grace. Have you failed Him? Have you sinned? This morning, you can find mercy no matter how far you've plunged? Are you struggling with some trial or some adversity and you're hurting? Come to find grace, to keep on keeping on. Let this be a little rest stop in the Holy of Holies. Come confident, come confident that God will accomplish His promises in your life. And come confident that God can what? Fulfill His plan in your life. Father, thank You now for this wonderful celebration of Your table. Thank You that You are the host of this table. You are here. You are present. And as we look back to remember what You did, as we look forward to see our eternal reward, Lord, let us not miss that You're here right now that we might receive mercy and grace. And Lord, help us to see that all that's required of us is to come with a sincere heart, surrendered to you, taking the mask off, being real before you, as ugly as that may be, knowing that we will be met with your embrace to not only cleanse, but to transform. And we trust you for it. In Jesus' name we do pray. Amen.